The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning. This is Carol Bossert. Thank you so much for joining uh, me on the show today. Um, as you know, one of the themes that has interested me uh, in the last couple of years is the international work uh, and the, the growing number of museums that are being built internationally and how many of those projects, whether it's a, it's a country or a, a private endeavor, are looking to the United States and U.S. firms to help them realize their vision. So I thought it would be fun today to sort of take a behind-the-scenes look at a specific case study. And the project is called Museico. It is the first children-slash-science center built in Bulgaria. And I have with me today Lee Skolnick, founder, principal, founding principal and creative director of Skolnick & Associates. And they were the designer of record that helped this organization uh, find its find its footing and realize its vision. And then I also have George Mayer, a dear colleague and friend of mine who is Vice President of Business Development for Kubik uh, Maltby Incorporated, and they were the fabricator of this uh, project. So today I'm I know that George and Lee are going to sort of take us on a behind-the-scenes tour, and also we'll talk a little bit about what it's like to work with outside designers and fabricators as partners in this important endeavor. So, Lee and George, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, Lee, I'm going to start with you and ask if you would ground our discussion for our listeners today by just uh, sharing a bit about your career path and those experiences that have shaped your thoughts about what makes a great exhibition. Sure. Um, well, I suppose I should start by letting everyone know that I'm actually a musician. <laughs> I, I studied music theory and composition in college, but then got bitten by the architecture bug um, midway through, and that was one of those epiphanies that you know changes your life. Um, I found in architecture and design 
what I was looking for, which is a way to synthesize all sorts of different disciplines, all different subject matters in, in a way that um, creates experiences for people. And so you constantly have to learn new things because every project is, is kind of a new topic, a new subject. And then you have the wonderful um, bonus of creating something that endures, that actually impacts people's lives. So when I got out of architecture school, um, one of the first calls I got was from a friend who was the director of a children's museum. And she said, you know, we're looking for uh, someone to design an interactive exhibit for children. You, you know, are you interested in talking to us? And my mind said, people design exhibits? I, it never occurred to me. But my mouth said, absolutely, let's meet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, what I learned in starting to design exhibits was that there was this critical element that really made them meaningful and made them sing and made, made them compelling experiences. And that is the fact that they are about something, that you, you're creating a storyline, a narrative to take people through, you know, both space but also through time. It's a four-dimensional experience where right at the beginning you've got subject matter to interpret through design. And I have to tell you that as an architect, because we do many other kinds of architectural projects, that has served me incredibly well, and I always look for the narrative that underlies the situation, whether it's a museum, a museum exhibit, or someone's home, or a school, or a library. You look for that, those, that, those kind of thematic underpinnings and make that the jumping-off point for the design. And, and we have been doing this for uh, amazingly 35 years, um, and a project like Museico, which you mentioned, is probably our perfect project because we got to conceptualize it. We designed the building, the exhibits, the site, the graphics, the interiors, and the educational programming. So it's a very holistic and integrated uh, project, and I find that those are, are always the best kind. Great. Thank you so much. You said so many very important things, and many of the uh, listeners to this show are emerging museum professionals or thinking about uh, coming into the museum uh, profession and world, and I, I think that you have given them some very good insights, and I'm uh, in a minute I will want you to share more of those insights of how you actually unpack all of those things in a project like Museico. But before we do, George, would you please share with us your career uh, path and trajectory and what uh, led you into building exhibitions for a living? Well, I had a very different career path than Lee. I did not study music. I studied theater. And I was in the design side of the theater business. And about the time I decided to get married, something went off in my head that said, uh-oh, you better find a way to make a living because as much as you love theater, theater is not going to be it. So I found the world of exhibits. And I started by doing, um, as a designer, doing uh, trade exhibits for corporations and then really wanted to find my way back to my love, which was theater. And I found this kind of in-between place called museums, which are 
um, in addition to being a lot about theater, are also about education. And I thought this would be a perfect place. Uh, at about that time, I also realized that unlike um, people that Lee associates with, who are very talented designers, I didn't have those same kinds of talents. So I um, found my way into the business development side of the business. And I can still be involved in all the creative stuff that goes on without uh, it being resting squarely on my shoulders. So that's my career path. And I've been doing this now for about 30 years. Uh, and I still love it. I wake up every day and look for challenges and look for ways to be innovative and find new business for our company. That's fabulous. And I would point out, too, that uh, Cubic Malt B, uh, as opposed to uh, several other uh, you know, organizations that, that fabricate exhibits, uh, I'm correct that Cubic Malt B is, ex- works exclusively for museums. Is that true? That is absolutely true, yes. When we were Malt B Associates back in the, uh, the company's founding in 1961, we only built uh, trade show exhibits for companies. And around the time of the Bicentennial in Philadelphia, Malty built its first museum exhibit for the National Park Service. And um, quickly, well, not very quickly, I guess, we continued to do trade exhibits in museums for a while and then uh, abandoned the trade show side of the business altogether. And for the past 20, 25 years, we've worked exclusively in museums. Well, and that that is uh, truly a testament and a uh, of a commitment to a uh, uh, to your company and a commitment to the museum field. So, uh, again, I suppose on behalf of the field, thank you very much for all that you do. Now, Lee, let's then mm-hmm. talk about uh, Museico. Uh, if you could, you know, sort of take us back in time. How were you hired? Uh, you, you know, I've already mentioned that this was the first of its kind in an entire country. Uh, so how, I think it's very interesting, not only were you starting from the ground up, so to speak, you were starting with a, with a community that didn't have any, you know, few benchmarks. So could you just sort of take us through that process? Sure. It's it's actually a, a very interesting um, story in the sense that uh, I think it points to uh, a more global phenomenon. Um, I'm going to take you way back to 1989, which is when the uh, Berlin Wall came down and the Soviet Union kind of disbanded. And all of these countries that were under the influence Putting, to put it mildly, of, of the Soviet Union, um, were all of a sudden kind of cast out into the world to fend for themselves. And the U.S. Congress wisely um, established a set of enterprise funds, and these were literally uh, caches of cash <laughs> that were earmarked for these countries to help them develop into democracies and to um, bolster their economic development, um, to convert them to uh, you know, more capitalist um, economic systems. And so they put together for each of these countries, and Bulgaria being one of them, they put together these funds 
and they assigned, I think it was perhaps directly from the White House, um, boards that would oversee the investment of these funds for the benefit of these countries. So fast forward 20 years, actually, it was established in 1992, um, and fast forward uh, 20 years to 2012, and these funds were, uh, they were designed to essentially expire and turn into not-for-profit foundations, and the money that had accrued during the course of the 20 years had to be earmarked for um, projects that would enhance the lives, the economy, the society of that country. And so that became the America for Bulgaria Foundation. So I think it's it's a very interesting phenomenon. So we were contacted... Um, by ABF, the, the foundation, and apparently they had seen an article in the New York Times about a project we had opened very recently and at the end of 2011 at the New York Historical Society, and it's called the Domena Children's History Museum. And one of their board members who lived in New York uh, went to see it with, I think, his grandchildren and, I'll admit, was bowled over and went back to his board and said, hey, you know what, this is what we should be doing. We should be introducing the concept of interactive, informal education that is uh, a children's museum, a science museum, into the Bulgarian society, into Bulgarian culture, because there was a a tremendous dearth of um, opportunities for informal education for kids in Bulgaria. And so they contacted us, and I, I know a number of other firms, and asked for qualifications. They narrowed it down to four teams of architects and exhibition designers, and um, and they invited each of the four teams separately at separate times to Sofia to meet with them to see the potential site that they were looking at, and to you know essentially an interview for the project. So we did a lot of preparation for the trip and created um, a concept uh, kind of vision for the, uh, for the project, and we went there in the absolute dead of winter. I mean, this was straight out of a John le Carre novel. Uh, you know, the slick streets, the, 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 the trolley cars, you know, the streetcars screeching through the public squares, snow up to your shoulders, whipping winds, and we said, gee, this is a great place to work. (laughs) Um, They took us to the site, which was uh, in a, what's called Studensky Grad, which is a a kind of engineering university district, which had seen, certainly seen better days, or maybe had never seen better days, um, and showed us a building which was crumbling, which was an old chemical lab. Um, and said, this is the site. And, we, you know, you, we can demolish most of the building. We have to keep some few bricks because by municipal code we couldn't demolish the entire building. Um, so uh, we went back to the hotel, and, of course, I had jet lag. And so I wound up falling asleep very quickly because I was exhausted, waking up at 1.30 in the morning, and that was it. I was up. And so I spent the entire night watching the snow and conceiving of the of Museico, of its its um, themes, its topics, its storyline, 
and, and its architecture and just scribbled down a million notes. We went back to New York. We prepared our, our submission, our creative and, and financial and administrative submission, and learned uh, a little while later that we had won the competition. Um, and from there on in, uh, we became a team with, with the client group because that's what you do. You know, you know it's not, you know, we, you talk about contractors, you talk about hired consultants. We don't believe in any of that. You know, we say when we start working, we're one team, we're sitting at the same side of the table, and they were uh, tremendous collaborators. That's that's great, and I and I hope Lee that when the movie comes out about this, that Tom Hanks plays you. <laughs> wait, wait a second. I, I, you know, they should give me a screen test. I might be able to handle it. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Well, we'll uh, hope Hollywood is listening, uh, George. So uh, I don't. I don't know if you can top that, but uh, how, how did you how did uh, you become involved in the project? Well, I can't top that, but I do love talking about Mosaico because it uh, was a it is a very successful project. And what Lee just said about uh, building a team, we definitely felt like we were a part of a team. We weren't just a contractor. Um, so a little bit of history is that in the um, in April of 2013, Malpe was invited as one of five or six exhibit fabrication firms to submit credentials to Lee's office and to the Museico team for evaluation and review by a committee that included Lee and uh, Lee's partner, Joanne, and uh, a group from Museico. And to riff on Lee's earlier comment about my mind said, yes. And my mouth also said yes. Um, this seemed like a really exciting opportunity for us. So we put together the best presentation that we could, and we submitted with our presentation a preliminary budget. And uh, based on that, we were invited to join the Lee and Museco team in New York to do a presentation about our capabilities and um, what we thought we could bring to this project. So we did that, and then after things went quiet for about a month, um, my phone rang one afternoon, and Lee's lead designer, Scott Briggs, was calling me to say that we had won the competition. Well, needless to say, our office went crazy. We were very excited (laughs) about this, and this was about the time that the hard work was about to begin because the budget that we had submitted with our presentation was about $9 million, and the client's budget for the fabrication was $5 million. So how do, we, how do we go about bringing a $9 million budget down to $5 million? So I think we can uh, talk about that in the next segment. Fabulous, fabulous. Uh, and thank you for reminding me. We are now going to take a very short break. And when we come back, more uh, about uh, Museico and uh, the behind-the-scenes efforts and particularly the partnership that is created on uh, these multi-year projects. So please stay tuned. We will be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Thank you. 
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Carol Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content. And at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn or call her directly at 240-432-7712. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossard, and today I am here with Lee Skolnick of uh, Skolnick Architecture and Design Partnership and George Mayer of Kubik Maltby, and we're talking about uh, a brand new project just opened recently called Museico in Bulgaria, a children's slash science museum. And before uh, before we went on break, Lee and George were just sharing some of the very picturesque um, experiences that they had in in uh, winning this uh, this important project and uh, uh, creating a a partnership with the client and with each other and and uh, other uh, other uh, uh, skilled providers of services and so Lee you know you you told a little bit about you know that that you you know you woke up from jet lag maybe jet lag is one of the more um, uh, positive aspects of you know getting creative juices flowing uh, to sort of conceive of what this project would be about and so I'm hoping you could could just maybe share with us uh, some of some of your thought process. How do you, you know, how do you conceive of a of a brand new project like this, um, and making sure, obviously, that it's not like anything else. Well, in this case, because the museum uh, world in Bulgaria was uh, so moribund, uh, you know, they took us to their local museums and. You know, they had piles of dust, and they were in these Soviet-style, you know, bunkers, and uh, there was no interpretation, uh, and they were very uh, sparsely visited. 
you know, I, my, my thought was that we needed to uh, do exactly the opposite of everything they were used to, that we needed to infuse um, their society in an open, transparent, interactive, engaging uh, way of interpreting information, which is what we do and what, what a lot of the, the Western world does, and certainly in our country that's been the trend for decades. So uh, the first thing I thought of was that the new building needed to be transparent, and I wanted it to be physically transparent so that people would see what was going on inside as opposed to have it hidden, and I wanted it to be metaphorically transparent because Bulgaria, as, as with other Soviet-influenced uh, countries up until that time had been opaque. Everything had been hidden. And I wanted to really send a message that this was a place for everyone, that it was a democratic institution, um, and that it wouldn't rely on a sign on the door to tell you it was a museum because you could see people doing things inside. So there was that on the architectural side. On the on the interpretive side, and what I always call the, the kind of project narrative, there were, because there was nothing like this in Sofia or Bulgaria in general, we really had to tackle the, the kind of broad spectrum of uh, topics, uh, of themes, of content. You know, we wanted to, and you know, they were science oriented, but we were going to find the science in every discipline. So what I started to sketch out was a journey. And the journey would take you through time and through space. And without sounding interstellar about it, uh, what I mean by space is we would move through the building in such a way that you would encounter by moving through time all the different topics that we wanted to engage the visitor in. So we had three levels to work with, a lower level, a main level, and an upper level. And so we started down on the lower level with the topics that would take you back in time, but also under the earth. So we had paleontology, geology, archaeology. Those experiences would all be on the lower level. On the main level, we'd deal with the present, with today, with our everyday lives. So we focused on uh, cities and how cities work, as well as nature and, and the natural world. And then as you ascended up to the upper floor, we would deal with the future, and those topics dealt with um, high technology and space exploration. So there was a real cohesive and integrated um, uh, relationship between the building and, and, and the experience you would move through, literally through the spaces of the building, and the storyline, where there was a continuum that we were uh, asking you to participate in, both spatially in terms of time and in terms of hitting all the highlights of the different topics that we wanted to share with kids and families. So th this was the basis for everything, and I did that diagram, you know, very crude diagram. And I imagine that when you walk through the entry to the building, there would be some iconic element that you would encounter right up front that would tie all these three together, and it turned out to be a tree. And so we have this iconic tree that starts down at the lower level 
with the roots of the tree, and, and it's, it's quite naturalistic, and, and then introduces you to these topics I mentioned. On the main level, it starts to morph, literally, into things that, that are, have to do with um, contemporary city life and nature, and then as it ascends up into this grand skylit space, on the upper level, it's all high-tech and space travel. And so it's, it's this enormous sculpture, really. But it, it, it's in a certain way, it's, it's an intuitive wayfinding device as well. It's not labeled, but you kind of see how it goes from the natural to the, um, to the high-tech as you move up through the building. And that, that was critical. The other thing that was um, crucial to me and interestingly, less crucial to the client was, you know, they wanted an international cutting-edge science, interactive science museum, and we could provide that, and they had seen our work in the past. But I felt very strongly that this not be a museum, as I call it. You know, this not just be another outpost, uh, anonymous, corporate, um, kind of branded uh, institution, but that it say something about Bulgaria and celebrate its rich traditions because it does have rich traditions. So we, we integrated two phenomena. One is Sofia, the capital city, is surrounded by three mountain ranges. And I found that very inspiring. And so we created these, what I call the little mountains, which intersect this very transparent glass box, these three very large uh, sculptural forms, which are uh, fragmented into facets. And for each one, we uh, sheathed it in a pattern and color scheme that referenced an indigenous Bulgarian tradition, artisanal tradition. So one was um, embroidery, decorative embroidery. One was intricate wood carving and the third was uh, glazed ceramic patterns. And so each of these three little mountains, which are very prominent in the building, um, reference in a, in a contemporary interpretation, a modern inter- interpretation, these three very traditional crafts. And, uh, and it was a, a bit of a sales job because they said, well, you know, we don't really want to talk about the past. We, you know, we want to point towards the future. And I said, you know, you can do both. And it's important for kids to understand that they come from a rich tradition and a rich culture that has, um, has, has wonderful aspects to it. So that, that was sort of the, the, the overriding um, interpretive and aesthetic approach that we took to the project. Thank you, Lee. That is a, a, a wonderful uh, way of, of describing what I'm, what I'm sure in, in your own, own way was very intuitive and you sort of found your, your way through it. I am particularly, uh, uh, pleased that you mentioned this, this notion, this sort of almost a tug, uh, if you will. I've, I've noticed it in, in several of, of the international projects that I have been involved with is that there is a desire on the part of the international client to be very modern and they perceive that as being the antithesis of their, uh, their cultural traditions. And as you say, that if, if someone go- takes them in that direction, it can become very sterile. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I've never 
used the word museum before, but I think it probably is very appropriate, and we all have examples of those. So uh, it's wonderful that they had you to work with and to push back just a little bit uh, in in their best best interest, and I'm sure you did that in a uh, in a charming way. And we may get back into what uh, into that how how that was done as we talk a little bit more about how partnerships, what true partnership means. Uh, but before I do, um, George, we left you hanging a little bit uh, in the last segment. You said that uh, on the one hand, your uh, you and and your company was thrilled to have this opportunity to to work with Lee and be part of this this partnership uh, and of course you you knew that that going to a nice you know cold snowy place was exactly what you wanted to be doing um, but you also said that you know the task was to bring this great vision that Lee's presented into the reality that the uh, the organization could uh, afford and five million is is a significant amount of money but is nowhere near nine million so how did you do that? And along the way, I'm sure that will sort of help us understand what fabricators do. Well, I'll come to the $9 million question, or is it a $5 million question in a moment? <clears throat> but what does the fabricator do? I think at the end of any project, if you ask the project manager, what did you do on this project? Uh, he or she would say, Oh my God, what didn't I do on this project? Um, you know, the fabrication and installation process is a many splendored thing. Um, <laughs> so we didn't design the exhibit, but uh, I think it's pretty fair to say that we assisted Lee and his design team in really realizing their ideas in the best possible way that they could be realized. And um, that started with taking that $9 million budget and finding a way to do the project for $5 million. And we, we were able to achieve that because we had help from Lee and his team and the client team in sourcing a lot of the work that was done on the project locally. We found great craftspeople. We found great fabrication shops that didn't necessarily do museum fabrication. In fact, they specifically didn't do museum fabrication. But they did fabrication that we could use to build into the project. Um, Lee, you can probably remind me of the name of the movie studio that's in the hills near Sophia. Um, The New New Boyana. The New Boyana Studios is a big movie-making company in uh, in the hills near Sophia, and they have an amazing scenic fabrication shop. So we were able to call on them to provide some of the scenic fabrication for the project. Um, There's a a great cabinet-making shop that we were able to utilize. Um, And by calling on lots of other local uh, firms to act as our subcontractors, we were able to reduce the budget from $9 million to $5 million. I'd like Uh, to just... Pipe in for one second. I, sure. I, I know we don't want to talk over each other, but I should point out that the America for Bulgaria Foundation made it extremely clear to us that not only for cost reasons, but in order to empower, educate, and empower the local workforce, they encouraged us, or I should say they directed us to uh, 
identify, to locate, and utilize as many uh, local, uh, as, as George said, craftspeople or, or, or fabricators as we possibly could, uh, both to bolster the economy, but also to give them the tools to do this kind of work in the future. Absolutely. Thanks, Lee. Um, yes, and that has paid off not just in terms of the budget, but, you know, as the fabricator and the contract holder for this project, Malpe has the warranty responsibility that um, began at the opening, on opening day, when the project was complete, and runs for a period of a year or 18 months. I've forgotten at this point what that period is. But, you know, we're, we're in New Jersey. It would be hard to um, offer warranty service uh, overseas and do it quickly. So we're able to call on some of the contractors that we used as subcontractors to help us provide that warranty service. So just in general, on any project, what the fabricator does is we do budgets, we do estimating, we do engineering, and in this case, we did a lot of value engineering to bring that $9 million uh, budget or $9 million estimate into the nine into the $5 million budget that the client had. We do technical drawings that show our craftspeople how things are to be built in the shop. We build prototypes of interactive exhibits, and most often we rebuild prototypes of interactive exhibits because they don't work the first time, they may not work the second time, but they'll probably work the third time. <laughs> um, so as we just said with the help of the client team we uh, sourced local suppliers and subcontractors and there's a there are a lot of other things in the in the fabrication process you know we in a way become the leader of the project once it's handed over and there are a lot of intangible things that need to happen we we like to try to build consensus about how things should be built and delivered and in what order. We manage subcontractors. We hold hands. We innovate. We solve problems. We try to be good team players. And at the end of the day, we build and install exhibits. So I would, uh, I would expect on this project that uh, members of the Maltby team were sort of ensconced or almost, how long did, did, you, did people live over there for an extended period of time? Absolutely. Um, our installers were there for seven or eight months, um, and we had some some lead installers from Malpe's shop who lived over there for seven or eight months, and then we used local uh, installers to help us physically install the exhibits. And our project manager, um, in this case, uh, he at Byers, was, he probably made 15 trips in the course of a year and a half to the site um, to check on the site progress and, you know, help them understand what the delivery schedules would be and interact with the subcontractors. And so, you know, there was quite a lot of um, travel involved in this project. Yes, yes. Uh, 
and the opportunity then to get to know the the local community that certainly paints a picture of a a hands-on partnership. And we're going to talk a little bit more about uh the the partnership and how uh these partnerships uh are are established and nurtured over time in our next segment. Uh I wanted to mention before we, you know, uh, before we break, that uh, Lee is also uh, the co-author of a book that I'm sure is familiar with to many of you, What is Exhibition Design, uh, with uh, Jan Lorink. It has been used widely in um, exhibit uh, development uh, courses and in museum studies programs and has been uh, uh, certainly instrumental to many of us. I also want to mention that, of course, you... Uh, those of you who are interested in talking with Lee and George further can do that uh, by contacting them on their respective web- websites, uh, uh, skolnick.com and also maltby.com. Uh, we will be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert from Museum Life. Stay tuned. We have so much more to talk about. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Carol Bossert established CB Services, LLC, because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content. And at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn or call her directly at 240-432-7712. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life. And today I've been talking with Lee Skolnick and George Mayer about a fascinating and important project, uh, the first children's science uh, center in uh, Bulgaria, uh, Museico. 
And uh, also, if you are interested, I know that uh, on Lee's website, uh, on the uh, uh, Skolnick Architecture and Design Partnership website, and, and also on the Maltby uh, website, there are some fabulous, fabulous photos that let you see what you can't see on the radio, and that is how <laughs> beautiful this project uh, was realized. And I think that you would agree that it... Uh, the partners did uh, succeed in realizing this vision and this narrative that Lee told us about earlier. But now, gentlemen, I'd like to shift gears just a little bit uh, to to talk perhaps more in general uh, about the, I mean, both of you have been, uh, as you say, you've been very successful in this business over 30 years. Um, I'd like, uh, Lee, I'm going to throw this to you first, and then, George, I'd like mm-hmm. you to sort of follow up on that changing relationship, or, or if you could characterize the, the, the relationship between in-house, staff in museums, and here I'm talking about museums that perhaps are, are established, you know, they have a staff, they do their day-to-day business, uh, you know, developing uh, programs and serving their communities, but then, of course, they, they look outside to, you know, the other side of the business that we don't talk a lot about are the, uh, what I characterize as the support partners. The designers, mm-hmm. the architects, the the fabricators we haven't even mentioned, but I'm sure they were on your team, lighting designers, media producers, hardware <laughs> integrators, all of those people are uh, are support partners that we often, unfortunately, lump into a term called contractors. And I'm just wondering, Lee, if you could uh, just reflect, give us your perspective about that relationship, how it perhaps it's changed over time, and where you think it's going. Well, I think there, there are two aspects, and, and they are, in fact, quite different. An, an established, muse- working with an established museum um, has a lot of pluses because they have experience. They understand um, the nature of this this calling and and this business, um, and they know something about their visitors. They know about how they run their their establishments, um, and they often are, have expertise in some of the same things that we have expertise in, whether it's design or education, interpretation, curatorial. Um, and that can be great. Um, the other side of the coin, not surprisingly, is they can be very set in their ways, and they can be at times somewhat suspect or suspicious about someone coming in from the outside and is, you know, are we going to tread on their turf? Um, do we think because we're quote-unquote experts that we know a lot more than they do and, you know, can that cause some friction? So, you know, I I think in the end we always, and I I don't mean to sound uh, Pollyannish, but we always make it work, but you need to assess the situation and see who you're working with and what their capabilities are, what their culture is like. Um, Working with a new museum, an emerging museum, is a completely different animal. And um, in that case, as with Musaica, we often act in the capacity informally or sometimes formally as the sort of institutional expert, the institutional planning expert, because 
they may not know what they don't, what they need. And you mentioned, for instance, the cast of characters. Of course, this project and, and most projects involve all of those lighting designers, media producers, systems integrators, label copywriters, researchers, etc. They may have absolutely no idea that the a project is as complex as it is, particularly a, a brand new museum. And so we we take on a, a leadership role, uh, which, you know, on the one hand, they're grateful for, and, and they realize, they increasingly realize that they needed it and, and that we're able to provide it. On the other hand, we also need to be sensitive to the fact that it's their museum, and ultimately we're, we're, we are going to leave. <laughs> and they need to be in the best possible position to, um, to run their museum and to understand the, the nuances and the complexities. And so we try to, you know, it's an educational process. We try to gradually hand off or, or, or share and then hand off all of these myriad responsibilities that ultimately will be their responsibilities and not ours. So it, it, it is two uh, distinctly different kind of situations that we find ourselves in. In the international work, it is very often the latter. It's very often that someone has a great idea they want to do a museum for kids or they want to do a museum on natural history or on their own cultural history, and that's kind of all they know. They know that they think they can find the funding. They know that they have the support of the powers that be, whether those are commercial or, or governmental um, or philanthropic. Um, but then they, they need to really be, uh, um, you know, handed a, a process, a kind of game plan to get from here to there. And we are able to do that because we've been doing it for so long and we've worked with so many startups that we can kind of let them know up front and then gradually throughout the process what they're going to need to take responsibility for and what we can provide and what others need to provide. And the fact that they're paying our fee is not the end of the, the, uh, their expense because there are a number of other people. We, we normally art direct or creative direct all those other people. And so they're not dealing with them, you know, day to day on, on every little nuance and detail. They're, we're, we're acting as the filter um, for the work of the lighting designer, the media producer, etc., so that they're not um, burdened with, with all of those individual intricate uh, moving parts. Well, and, and, and as you, uh, yes, and uh, certainly in some of these startups, as we all know, uh, that, uh, that initial core staff might be, oh, one person. Uh, exactly. and, <laughs> until they, uh, and I, and as George was saying, uh, earlier, you, uh, that, uh, part of what you were doing is building capacity within the country uh, to build more museums uh, to repair what they've uh, what they've built uh, to maintain it and uh, mm -hmm. to do uh, their own creative uh, work um, but George I you know I you are uh, I don't want to say an institution because that would make us all sound so old uh, yeah, but don't say institution please 
<laughs> no, I won't. Uh, so, so I've banned that word from my vocabulary. Okay, but good. you, you are often uh, on the floor of the um, the exhibition hall at, say, the American Alliance of Museums, the Association of Science and Technology, and I've, you know, I've been in your booth. You sometimes have a, you know, little little uh, chocolate or coffee, and I can uh, rest and sort of watch you work. And one of the things that I've always admired about you is that you talk to so many people and provide so much free advice uh, that, uh, in fact, I think you could, uh, uh, if you were new to the museum world, you could just uh, come to the exhibition hall and talk with you and wouldn't have to go to any of the other sessions. Um, Laura Lott is calling me about that statement. But uh, but (laughs) I I do think, George, I'd like you just to reflect for, for a couple of minutes on the role that not only fabricators play in the project, but the role that uh, you particularly and, and uh, Cubic Maltby have played in the museum world as a whole? Well, that's a big question. Um, <clears throat> gee, we, I think we would like to say that we get invited to bid on projects, to build projects because of a portfolio that at this point includes over 375 museum projects, not the least of which are... <clears throat> excuse me, the museum in Washington, the original Holocaust Museum in Washington, and other really, really seminal, great projects. So we get invited to things because we get invited to opportunities because of that work. But what's actually more important is what we leave behind when we're done with a project. When our installers have packed up their job case and they roll it back onto the truck We like to think that what we leave behind is a museum that can be operated by the staff. Um, We leave behind operations and maintenance manuals that they can use to keep the exhibits up and running. And we leave behind um, a good quality project, which serves us as well. It enables us to go on then to the next project and hopefully get three good photographs and a a good reference from, from this project. Um, so if we've brought anything to the museum community, we like to think that what we've brought are projects that are easy to operate and that make a difference to the community. Uh, well, I think you're being in, in, incredibly modest, George, but I'll, I'll let you off the hook on that one. Uh, Thank you. But, but uh, I, then my follow-up question, and, and Lee, I uh, will... Uh, ask you to think about this as well. What advice do you give museum directors or say, you know, someone uh, that uh, has a budding idea, how to seek out and evaluate the kind of outside help that they need? George? I think that one of the most important things is capabilities for sure, but find people that you can work with. Find people who will be flexible and who understand what your goals are, who understand what their role is in helping you achieve those goals. Because at the end of the day, everything that we do comes down to interactions and the people that we work with. And I think that's one of the reasons that the um, relationship between 
Lee's office in Malpe has been very successful is that we understand that along the way, it's, it's a long path that we can travel. It can be fraught with difficulties and challenges. But along the way, we need to be flexible and understand where the other guy is coming from. So look for people who you feel that you can work with. Great. Thank you. And, uh, Lee, we've got uh, just a real quick uh, one minute. If you could just, uh, what's the most important piece of advice you could give a museum director? Well, I think George hit the nail on the head. And, and we have a mantra in our firm. We call our process listen, learn, distill, create. And you need to find people who you know are really going to listen to you and are, and are open to learning about your specific situation, not applying stock solutions um, that, that, that can then distill those qualities into something. And then, of course, be creative in, in, in producing an experience that fulfills your original goals. But that listen part should not be um, uh, undervalued. Uh, we spend. We often say we don't engage in guerrilla design. We're not coming in and I don't wave my hands and all of a sudden there's some souffle in front of you. We take the time to immerse ourselves in the situation, get to know everyone, and then start to plot out a process to get to the, the, the final product. And that's Great. critical. Wonderful. Thank you. And with that, uh, George Lee, thank you so much for being on the pro- uh, program today, and thank you so much for the work that you do uh, for the museum industry and for the profession. Uh, I can't wait to go to Bulgaria, although I will wait until spring uh, to see this wonderful project. Uh, thank you both for being on the show today. Thank you, Carol. Pleasure. Thank, thank you, you, Carol. And we will be back next week with another edition of Museum Life. Uh, Until then, I'd love to hear from you, so send me a tweet or an email, um, and I always respond. So uh, thank you for listening. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.